The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. see you guys as you get settled grab your bible or grab one of the bibles in front of you and make your way to the old testament book of esther we are continuing our journey through this tremendous story throughout the spring so we're going to pick up this morning where we left off in esther chapter 2 verse 19 and as you're making your way there let me ask you a question to kind of set up our time together and it's a question that has been asked in the church for hundreds of years now And it's simply this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's a big question. Not what do you think might bring you comfort on those days, but what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's the first question of at least at this point in my life, arguably my favorite catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and it cuts straight to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? What's your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer they give to the question is one answer in three parts. The first part is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that word, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Part one of the answer is a reminder to God's people that God's grace alone through Jesus makes me who I am. We're reminded every single time we consider that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior who's paid for our sins with his blood that apart from the grace of God, I shudder to think who I might be. But part two of the answer continues. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And the church is again reminded as we consider the question that it's God's loving sovereignty that ensures that every single event of my life, even the ones that may seem so insignificant, may seem so trivial to us, that he is actively at work weaving them together for his highest glory and our greatest joy. And so the third part of the answer follows this way. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me, I love this, makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. My joy in God worked in my heart by his grace and his spirit is seen, is evidenced in my delight to live for him a joy and a delight that he is working out in my heart, which means the way that you and I live matters. God's saving, changing, preserving grace, his invisible hand of providence working for my joy, my joy being reflected in my life. Those are all pillars 
of our ultimate comfort in life and in death. And I remind you of those things if you've heard them before. And I, I introduce you to those things if you've never heard them before because these three pillars of our deepest comfort in the grace of God working in our life for his glory and our joy are also three significant threads that are being woven together in the tapestry of the story that is the book of Esther. And so this morning, as we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 19, I want us to listen this morning for those threads being so intricately and skillfully woven together in this story. So chapter 2, verse 19, let's, let's pick up the word of the Lord here. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now let me catch everyone up to where we are in case you weren't with us the last couple of weeks when we began the story. We are in the kingdom of Persia in a time in which God's people had been captive there starting in Babylon then in Persia and God according to his word through a Persian king named Cyrus had sent an order that his people could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple but some of God's people stayed in Persia rather than going back. And the book of Esther chronicles a, a time in the life of God's people that stayed in Persia. And we, we met the king at the time. His name was Xerxes, or his Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. You'll hear it throughout the story. We met him, and we got a glimpse into his person and his character and his love of his own glory and his love of his own power and his intoxication with his, himself. And we saw him in, in anger and frustration banish his queen from her position and, and go about this empty and hollow search for the queen that would replace her, a search that would be empty of any virtue, empty of anything good or, or true or lovely about it. And he would find the queen that would please him, and her name was Esther. And it's here in this story that we've met him, and, and we see that Esther, an Israelite, you and I only know that at this point, only the reader knows that. No one here in the story knows that because she's kept that to herself at the encouragement of her cousin Mordecai who raised her. We found that after Esther has become queen, when you follow the chronology of the book through, when we pick up in chapter 2 verse 19, we're some five years probably removed from her coronation as queen. Life in the kingdom has been going on and we see in the very first verse that Xerxes is doing Xerxes-like things. He's still gathering for himself young women from around the empire. There's no reason to believe that these were the same women he gathered in the realm when he gathered Esther. This is something that was a common practice of Persian kings in the day, and it wasn't relegated to just gathering young women. Historians tell us that Persian kings, Xerxes himself, would routinely gather young men up to 500 a year to serve as eunuchs in his kingdom. So when we pick up the story, Xerxes is doing Xerxes things, and Mordecai, we hear, is sitting at the king's gate. Now that's an idiom. It's a, it's a phrase. Just like you and I would say a judge sits on the bench, there is no literal bench back there the judge sits on. That's just a way that we talk about a judge operating in his position of authority. He's sitting on the bench. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. This is a place, we won't describe the whole king's gate at this point, but this is a place that would indicate that Mordecai is holding some level of position at this point in the king's kingdom. So Xerxes is being Xerxes. Mordecai now, we can see obviously, has a position in politics and in the kingdom at this point. And, and what about Esther? Well, verse 20, we, we get Esther again. 
Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So five years later, she's still queen and she's still quiet about her identity as an Israelite. And it's important just to note as you read the story, we, we have no reason up to this point in the story to believe that it would have been detrimental to Mordecai or Esther for the king or anyone in the kingdom to know that they were Israelites. We don't have any evidence of a threat against the Israelites at this point in the Persian kingdom. In fact, the Persians are historically noted for their leniency and their tolerance to other nations and other religions. It was how they managed to expand such a big kingdom. So there's no indication at this point that it was beneficial in any way for them to not be known as Israelites. In fact, when Xerxes would have gathered all these young women from his kingdom to come and go through the process in which he determined his next queen, the majority of those women would come from various nationalities and nations because the Persians would have conquered their lands and their kingdoms. He wasn't discriminating against any particular nationality. So there's no reason to think this was happening, this silence was happening simply out of self-protection. There's something about their desire to remain anonymous Israelites at this point in their story that the writer wants us to be mindful of. So in those days, verse 21, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, the WWE names right there. Where's Shelby? <laughs> We're getting ready for WrestleMania. <laughs> Shelby and I's tag team names, Big Fan and Teresh. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, they became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Lay hands is another way of talking about assassinate. They were plotting a way to kill the king. We don't know why. Maybe because he made them eunuchs. I don't know. That would be enough of a reason probably if I were them. But we can't speculate. The writer doesn't tell us why they're doing this. He only tells us that they are. And this knowledge, verse 22 says, this knowledge came to Mordecai. We don't know how. We can only speculate. But here's the dilemma we find Mordecai in at the beginning of this part of the story. King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, he's, he's not the greatest guy, is he? We already know a little bit about him from the first part of the story. His delight in himself and his own power and his own glory, the way that he thinks about and treats other people, He's not the greatest dude. So here Mordecai has information that two men are plotting to kill him. What's he going to do with the information? I was immediately reminded when I was reading this story again of an episode of a TV show that some of you might be familiar with or not be familiar with. It's called ER. It predated Grey's Anatomy. So there was something before Grey's Anatomy. And there was actually something before ER too, but it was ER. And there was this great episode in ER. I remember where I was sitting with my wife watching this show. It was so powerful of an episode. But a political dictator had been brought to the United States for a medical treatment. And a time came in the course of his treatment when he was on the verge of death. And at this point in the story of, of ER, a number of the doctors in the ER were international. And the whole episode surrounded what do we do? If we don't treat him, he will die. And all that he is doing to his own people, the genocide that he is committing to his own people will end. But we've taken an oath. What are we going to do? And the whole thing began to play out. 
In a sense, this is where Mordecai is. He knows what might happen to the king. A king who's not engendered himself to those that he leads. What is he going to do? Well, the story tells us that he he told this plot to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So she's making sure the king knows who gets credit for discovering this assassination plot. And verse 23 says, when the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Don't think like the Old West nooses and platforms. This is another way of describing what the Persians perfected and the Romans took to another degree that you and I know about crucifixion. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so the leading government official of Mordecai's day was not a man that made himself easy to love, easy to respect. He treated the majority of the people that he led poorly, many of them as subhuman. He was intoxicated by his own power, his own wealth, his own glory. Yet Mordecai saves him. And we don't know why. Maybe it was advantageous in his mind to save him. Maybe he would be rewarded for this and it would be profitable for him. We don't know why he chose to do it, what motivated him, but for you and I in reading this story and just considering it for a bit in our own day, in our own time, we read it with the perspective on the other side of the cross. See, if you leave this place and you go home and at some point today you turn on the news or you open up your computer and go to wherever you receive your news and you may very well hear stories of the highest leaders in our own land saying things again to demean those he's intended to lead, exalting his own name, his own glory, seemingly intoxicated on his own power, giving no real concern to those that he's supposed to care for, protect, serve, and lead. And as citizens of God's kingdom, how are you and I meant to respond? We don't know what motivated Mordecai to do what he did that you and I would look at and go, well, that was the right thing to do, but you and I live on the other side of the cross. Our motivations for how we're to respond in similar situations are very clear. The Apostle Paul reminded the church in Rome in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter reminds the church in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are to respect the emperor, those placed in authority over us. Paul reminds the church through Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we are to pray for those who are in authority over us. And, and in the time we're to come, you can extrapolate it out. We, like Mordecai, are to save them. I love how this same Heidelberg Catechism addresses it. Question 104, dealing with the Ten Commandments. The question in the Heidelberg Catechism says, what does God require in the Fifth Commandment? Now, if you're thinking, you're immediately going, wait a minute, Fifth Commandment? That's honor your father and your mother. Well, in the teaching of the church in catechisms like this, they would expand the principle of the law out into its applications in everyday life. And so the answer to that question in the catechism goes like this, that you and I show honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother, and to all of those in authority over me, submitting myself with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline. And I love this part. And also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it's God's will to govern us by their hand. 
and not simply patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings because God intends for them to govern us at this time in history by their hand, but because you and I are so intimately aware of our own weaknesses and our own shortcomings that apart from the grace of God through faith in Christ in whom we are held, whose we are, as the catechism says, but for that same grace of God shown to you and I in our weaknesses and shortcomings, who might we be? Friends, as our ultimate comfort stems from the fact that we're Christ's and his power is at work in us, our comfort and joy are embodied, lived out in the way that we live in obedience to him. Here is what it looks like. Respectfulness, patience, prayerfulness, a willing to forbear with weakness and shortcomings. Mordecai did what was right, and we don't know why, but you and I have very clear motive for the way that we are to respond to those in authority over us today. Now, in Mordecai's day, an act of loyalty like this, an act of loyalty towards the king that would spare his life, it was historically precedented that some kind of reward would be given to someone who showed that kind of loyalty to the king. So as people would hear Esther read, they would be expecting a reward to come to Mordecai. He was the one that was responsible for stopping this assassination. And the king knew that very clearly because Esther told him that it was Mordecai and it was written down in the Chronicles of the King. So the story picks up in chapter three. This is where chapter headings and number of verses get in the way of stories. It picks up in chapter three. And we read that after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, and you are expecting to hear Mordecai. He's the one that stopped the assassination. So as you hear the story read, and as God's people would hear the story read, the expectation is that the king promotes Mordecai. But look at what it says. The king promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to a movie and been in a theater with a crowd of people that talk back to the theater, that talk back to the movie. Have you ever done that? You ever been in a movie when people just stand up and yell back at the movie? Hey, he's behind you. He's going to kill you. No, he didn't just say that. You ever been in one of those? This is what the response would have been of God's people as they hear the story of Esther Red. No, not him. Boo. <laughs> Double boo. Double boo because one, Mordecai is overlooked for his loyalty. His loyalty to the king is overlooked. He's not rewarded. So there's an injustice committed in their minds against Mordecai and his loyalty to the king. But double boo because of who was promoted instead when the Israelites would have heard that Haman, the Agagite, was promoted instead of Mordecai and given a throne above all of those around him, that is when they would have stood up and yelled. And you've got to understand a little bit of the story of God's people to understand why, and it plays prominently in the tension that's being developed now in the book of Esther. You see, back when God's people were in slavery to Egypt, a different land under a different ruler, they were facing the same threat of extermination that we'll see God's people eventually face in the book of Esther. 
God stepped in powerfully. He heard their cries, Genesis tells us, and he steps in powerfully. Plagues across Egypt, Passover coming through, setting his people free, parting the Red Sea, leading them to the mount where he would speak with Moses face to face, give them his word, give them his law, commit himself to them. They would commit themselves to him and he would set out leading them to the land that he promised. It's the story of God's redemptive work. Well, Exodus chapter 17 tells us that when they left the mount and were on their way being led by God to the land that he promised, there was a people that attacked them when they left the mountain. And the people that attacked them were the Amalekites. Now, Exodus chapter 17, you can go read the story. The Amalekites attacked God's people, and God's people fought back against them. And if you grew up in the church, you may be familiar with the story with more detail. This was the battle in which when Moses would raise his hands and hold up his staff, the Israelites would prevail against the Amalekites. But every time his hands drooped, the Amalekites would prevail against the Israelites. So Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands, put a rock so he could sit down and keep his hands up, and the Israelites, led by Joshua, overcame the Amalekites, right? Well, in Exodus chapter 17, God says this, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Tell the man who led my people in battle, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And God's people continued on to the edge of the land, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's kind of Moses' final sermon to God's people before they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 25, 17 says this, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, how he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, so time comes and you're going to take the land I'm giving you. You'll be at peace. You'll be at rest. Here's what I'm going to promise you. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. That time comes just as God had promised. And it falls in the lap of a man named King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15. God gives Saul this command according to the promise that he had made to his people. Saul was to go and make war against the Amalekites utterly destroy them, blot them from the face of the earth. The king of the Amalekites was a man named Agag. Saul went to battle, but spared Agag. Spared some of his descendants, spared some of his livestock. When Samuel came and said, what'd you do? Saul, why didn't you obey the Lord? Saul had all kinds of justifications. Oh, I'm going to use the livestock for sacrifices for worship. Never answering why he spared Agag why he spared some of his people. And for his disobedience, God judged Saul and he took the kingdom from him. So when we read in Esther chapter two or three, that Mordecai, a direct descendant of Saul, remember, is overlooked for his loyalty. And in his place, a direct descendant of Agag the man Saul was supposed to kill, and if he had been obedient, all of his descendants wouldn't even exist. A man from Agag is promoted in his place? Boo and double boo. Because the enmity between God's people and the Amalekites, the Agagites, still exists. So how's Mordecai going to handle it? Right? Stuck in the dilemma of what to do with the assassination plot for a king that no one really respects? He does the right thing. What's he going to do in this dilemma, in this tension? 
Verse 2 says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? This, my friends, my movie buffs, this was Mordecai's Doc Holiday moment. Any of you are familiar with the movie Tombstone? That great moment in the beginning of the story when they all arrive in town. Wyatt and his brothers and Doc are there and Sheriff Behan comes out. Wyatt says, Doc, have you met Sheriff Behan? You remember the the story? Behan sticks his hand out. Doc says, forgive me if I don't shake hands. My hypocrisy only goes so far. This is Haman's, I mean, Mordecai's Doc Holiday moment. Evidently, his hypocrisy has been stretched to its utter limit. He will not give respect to Haman, the Agagite. Now, consider all the ways that Mordecai has compromised up to this point. The church is always trying to make a hero out of Mordecai at this point by saying that what was being asked of him was some version of worship towards towards, towards, um, Haman, and he simply wouldn't do it. That's not true at all. The only one in the kingdom that expected that kind of worship as a god was Xerxes. What was being asked of everyone in the kingdom with Haman was the simple respect of courtesy and honor for his position. Just like today, if you were to come into contact with any one of the British royal family, women here would be expected to curtsy. Men would be expected to bow. Everyone was expected to bow in respect and honor to Haman in this position. But Mordecai wouldn't do it. Evidently, his compromise and his hypocrisy only goes so far. Sure, let my cousin go be taken into the king's harem. Fine. Not tell anybody that I'm actually an Israelite. But this? Honor an Agagite? I can't do it. And in one sense, it seems and it may very well be justifiable. I'm not saying that he was wrong to not do it. What I am suggesting, and at least what I'm wrestling with in my own heart, in my own life, as I consider my heart and I consider the church, is that it seems like a pretty petty time to get a conscience all of a sudden. Doesn't it? I mean, considering all that he was willing to compromise up to this point, and the more I thought about it this week, and the more I considered it, and the more I tried to reflect in my own heart and, and reading the story, I I kept being reminded of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. When Jesus said the religious folk of his day, the Pharisees in particular, they had a habit of being willing to swallow camels while straining out gnats. There was a willingness of the religious people in Jesus' day to to swallow camel-like transgressions against God's word and argue about gnat-sized details in the lives of God's people. And I thought about my own life, and I thought about the church, and I thought about just how willing we often are to swallow camel-sized transgressions against God's holiness and his word amongst ourselves. Things that would utterly threaten the, the tapestry and the unity of God's people. Gossip, sexual sin, greed, slander. I mean, go read 1 Corinthians. All the things present in the church then in heart are present amongst God's people now at times. And we find ways to justify it, rationalize it, or simply ignore it. But yet we're going to threaten the unity of the church so often arguing about gnat-sized things like where we should send our kids to school. 
things that aren't unimportant, but in the whole scheme of things, <clears throat> really? That's where we're going to divide and draw the line in the sand? What things we should listen to, what things we should watch, important, yes. Considerable, yes. Draw the line in the sand as to who's in and who's out there? I don't know. Which animal you vote for, donkey or elephant? Important, yes. Going to draw the line in the sand there? And I was thinking how easy it is to talk about being gospel-centered in all things, but how, so, how hard it is to actually put it into practice amongst God's people. Haman wasn't, I mean, excuse me, Mordecai wasn't necessarily wrong for not doing this. It just seems like a curious place to finally draw the line. When all the other things standing before him, even involving his cousin Esther and their obedience to God's word while living in Persia, seem to have gone overlooked. Maybe there were some more camel-like areas where he could have practiced some conviction before this, but this seems to be the place where his hypocrisy has only gone but so far, and he won't do it. And now the, the men that are around him are noticing, and they've been asking him every day, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? And now it's no longer, why aren't you honoring Haman? It's, why are you not obeying the king? And so in verse 4, when they spoke to him day after day, he wouldn't listen to them. So they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So finally, at some point after their pestering of Mordecai, Mordecai must have recounted for them the history of God's people with the Amalekites, the history of Saul and the history of Agag, who he's a descendant of and who Haman is a descendant of. And they take this story to Haman to validate its reality. And evidently, we'll see in Haman's response to the story, the enmity still exists. But don't miss the irony. It was Mordecai who expressed his loyalty upon hearing an assassination plot against Xerxes who goes to Xerxes to tell him of those plot and spares his life. Now, he's in the other side. These men hear his story of dishonoring Haman and they go to Haman to tell Haman of Mordecai's disobedience towards him. And so verse five says, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, evidently he didn't even notice Evidently, these guys had to tell him about it. So consumed, probably like Xerxes, with his own glory, he wasn't paying attention to the fact that Mordecai wasn't bowing down, but now he knows. Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He wasn't going to be a man about it. He wasn't going to deal with it directly. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman now plots. He sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, finally, into chapter 3, the conflict and the tension of the book is coming to surface. We've met the characters. We've gotten the setting. This is the conflict that has to be resolved. What is going to happen? Someone in authority is plotting to annihilate God's people. How is that going to be resolved? And as you read this, and we go through the story week after week, going through this spring, you need to realize that this animosity, it goes back further, way back further than Saul and Agag. Further back than the Amalekites in the wilderness with the Israelites. 
It goes all the way back to the eternal conflict of the serpent seeking to destroy the sons and the daughters of the woman. This is our enemy's continual work at seeking to destroy God's people. And so here, we read about Haman hatching his plan. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the pure, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. Their laws are different from those of every other people. That's a half-truth. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. That is a lie. Haman basically came to Xerxes. He tickled his ears and he told them that there is a people who are different, who are difficult, and who are dangerous. And they are not in your best interest. And so he says in verse 9, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Well, that sounds good. So the king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king gave the indication of his authority to the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, to do as he wanted to do. So the king said in verse 11 to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. So let's just slow down for for just a minute. And let's just consider the people that we've met so far along the way. You and I have a choice to make at this point as we're reading the story. We can read it, And we can respond to it much in the same way the Pharisees in Jesus' day would respond to things. Like the story you find in Luke 18 when the Pharisees would go to pray and they would pray, oh Lord our God, I thank you so much that I'm not like any of these other men, these sinners. I thank you that I'm so good. We get the option as we read this story right now. We can read the story like a Pharisee and avoid asking ourselves the hard questions. We can avoid dealing with the realities that Jesus said for you and I to hate someone in our hearts, to harbor some kind of animosity towards someone else in our hearts is to commit murder against them in our own heart. We can read it like a Pharisee and go, ooh, Haman bad, I'm so glad I'm good. Or we can read it with the recognition that apart from the saving grace of God that makes us his own, The only difference sometimes between Haman and us is that he has the legal power and authority to act out on what he wants to do. You and I, when we tend to harbor this kind of animosity towards other people, we're restrained in some sorts by the grace of God at work in our own lives, but we often find ways to make people feel our wrath, don't we? We plot against them to feel it emotionally. We plot against them to feel it relationally. We plot against them to feel it socially. When we do, we are practicing the same attitude we see at work in Haman. But what about Xerxes? 
oh Lord, my God, thank you so much that I'm not like that sinner Xerxes, that I'm good. What about Xerxes? Xerxes didn't seem to care so much about the truth, did he? He seemed to really only care about what was in his own best interest. You realize that unlike the assassination plot that was told to him, he didn't get a counsel to go investigate the claims. Xerxes never asked one question of Haman. Who are these people living in the kingdom who have different laws, who are not in my best interest to tolerate? Hey, hey, get some advisors together. Go and find out who these people are. He never once thought to get the both sides of the story, to get all the information before he gave away his authority, did he? In fact, if he had, he would have discovered that the very man who saved his life years before was a member of the people that Haman was seeking to destroy. And if he had found that out, that Mordecai was an Israelite, do you know what he would have found out? So is Esther. I'm about to sign away the death of the man who saved my life and my own queen. But rather in an utter demonstration of laziness and a real lack of love or care for anyone else, he just takes misinformation in and pronounces judgment about what he hears. Friends, how often are you and I guilty of the same thing? Someone comes to us and tells us something about someone else. Maybe it's direct gossip, maybe it's not, but you can guarantee it's only one side of a story. How often out of a lack of love for that person, how often even out of what is most comfortable and in our own best interest at the time, how often do you and I take that information in not seek to find out the whole story, not seek to give the benefit of the doubt to people that are being told about, but we just go ahead and pronounce judgment on them in our hearts and through our lives. When you and I do that, we are practicing at heart the same thing we see on display in Xerxes here. And so we have a choice. As we read God's word, we need to be honest when we come across the unsavory aspects of humanity, you and I are meant to realize that apart from the saving and restraining grace of God, it could be us. And so like we said in the beginning, what a great comfort it is even in life now to know that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. Apart from his grace saving me, preserving me, and by his Holy Spirit working to change me, who knows what I'd become? We have a choice when we come to stories like this. How are we going to read God's word? But my clock is ticking and the story keeps going. Verse 12, the king's scribes, they were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And then an edict, according to all that Haman had commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, all of his authority behind it. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction, listen to this, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. It is a true historical purge. 
And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. Get yourself ready for the day that you get to go out with all the authority of the king and literally annihilate these people around you and take everything that's theirs for yourself. Get yourself ready. That day is coming. And so the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And look at this. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The business deal has been signed. Sitting at Morton's for a glass and a steak. Look at all that we've been able to accomplish. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Friends, this is cold, calculated evil. And it's here, as we consider ourselves in this part of the story, that we're to be mindful of that other pillar of our greatest comfort that we've not yet mentioned. That the God who saves us and makes us his own by the blood of his son, that delivers us from the power of Satan himself, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. The question at hand for God's people at this point in the story, as they would hear it, would be, well, what about those of us who aren't faithful to our end of the covenant? Remember, these are God's people who chose to stay in Persia, who chose to compromise, who chose to take the path of least resistance. Will he still be faithful even when we remain unfaithful? Will he deliver as he has in the past? Friends, it's here in the story as we consider this great comfort that is ours by the character and sovereignty of God, we've got to have our eyes open to look for the seeds of his preserving grace that are sown throughout this story. As God's people would hear this read, there were certain things that they would begin to recognize even in the details. As Haman cast a lot to determine the day on which the annihilation of God's people would occur, he casts lots to figure it out, but we know from Proverbs 16 that it's the Lord who makes the decisions. Even Haman's plan is sovereignly determined by God. And in this, the seeds of God's preserving grace, his faithfulness to his people of being scattered. You see, on the eve of the 13th day of the first month, when Haman was sending out this great edict around the empire that people were going to destroy, to annihilate, and to kill the Israelites and plunder their goods, do you know what God's people were meant to be doing? 13th day of the first month. According to Exodus chapter 12, they would be preparing the night before Passover. See, back in Egypt, when they were under threat of annihilation from Pharaoh, God stepped in to deliver his people. And he told them his judgment would come upon the land of Egypt. On this night, death would come to every house that did not listen and obey his word. God told his people to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb, and to sacrifice that lamb. And to take the blood of that lamb and paint that blood over the lintels or the doorposts of their home. 
That was an act of faith and confidence in God's sustaining mercy and faithfulness to his people because that night, death would come to the land for every home that was not quite literally covered in the blood of that sacrificial lamb. And so on the night of the 13th day, in the first month of the year, when God's people would be selecting that lamb that they would celebrate the Passover with on the next day, remembering God's deliverance of his people from certain death, an edict of certain annihilation was going out about them throughout the empire. And at this point in the story, as God's people would hear it being read, the timing of this decree to coincide with the remembrance of God's faithfulness to deliver his people from annihilation would only heighten the anticipation of how God would preserve his people by his grace for his glory even as they remained unfaithful to him. And for you and I on this side of the story, who read it with a perspective that even God's people then couldn't hear it with, we get the perspective of how God ultimately fulfilled that covenant promise to his people. Reading this now, we we can see, we can hear, and we can respond to the seeds of his preserving faithfulness as we remember Jesus. The Lamb of God, John said, who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lamb, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Our great king who came, a greater king than Xerxes with a greater kingdom. And when he came, just like Mordecai treated Haman, you and I did not honor him as he deserved to be honored. But unlike Haman, Jesus didn't bow up in pride, didn't treat us with resentment and arrogance, He doesn't get vengeful and seek to destroy us. Rather, he loves us and serves us. Friends, as you look for the seeds of God's preserving grace throughout the story, I don't know if you can recognize it, but God has more right to act against us than Xerxes had to act against Israel. You and I do not keep his word. We don't honor him as we should. It ultimately doesn't profit him to tolerate us in our sin. Those of us who spend so much of our lives trying to steal his glory from him. The edict for our judgment could easily be signed against us by our great king. But that's not how he determined to deal with us, is it? I love how one commentator said it. He said, look at what our king has done instead. He's not listened to the case that Satan brings against us. Instead, he's taken his own dear son, the one who was more precious to him than a signet ring, and has handed him over to his enemies to destroy. God said, in effect, Satan, do with my son whatever seems good to you. Let him be punished for sin, but let his people go. Destroy him, kill him, annihilate Jesus, for sin must be paid for. Plunder his goods, distribute them amongst those who are putting him to death, torture him, mock him, execute him on a cross. But as for my people, you shall not touch them. The wages for sin were certain. It was death. The edict was given. Someone will pay, either you or Jesus. And friends, our best intentions can never save us. 
Our best efforts at, at becoming someone else, at, at turning over a new leaf, can never pay the price for our sin. Death is certain. Separation from God for all eternity is certain for those who quite literally are not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. He is the one who laid his own life down to be annihilated in our place. He died in our place for our sins as a substitute and a sacrifice so that by the grace of God, through faith in him, you and I can know in life and in death that our greatest comfort is that we do not belong to ourselves, but belong body and soul to him, our faithful Savior and King that he has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood, that he has set me free from all the power of the devil, that he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work out together for my salvation. This is the certain promise. This is the ultimate comfort that God holds out to all who repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus. For all who do, you can know that by his Holy Spirit, God also assures you of eternal life and makes you, is actually working in you to make you willing and ready from now on to live for him. So as one writer said, instead of letters of death winging their way to all corners of the empire in every language, now the gospel of life goes to every tribe, nation, in their own tongue. Indeed, as the gospel penetrates your heart, you become living letters from God. You and I become God's mail delivery system to bring his message of life to our neighbors and to the furthest nations. We carry literally the aroma of Jesus everywhere we go. Friends, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Is it that you are his and he is yours? Friends, this is the certain hope, the certain promise that God holds out to us in his son. It is this that we remember and celebrate each and every time we gather as we respond to God's word, remembering Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin. That last Passover meal when he took the bread and said, this is my body broken. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we do it, we proclaim to one another our confidence, our joy, and our delight in him. Friends, I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a chance to respond to God's word in such a manner together. Then we'll sing, we'll celebrate, we'll make much of him and we'll be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray and then we'll take some time to reflect and respond to God's word. Lord, we thank you for the sure and certain promise that we have in you through your son. God, it's not an empty question. What's our only comfort in life and death? May it be our only comfort today, tomorrow, and the next day to the day you bring us home. May it be our deepest and only comfort that we are yours and you are ours. May that be the greatest joy of our hearts. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www dot redemptionhill dot com